Hi, I'm Alexis Alexander, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Hello, all. This is part two of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Explainer Series for the Off-Duty Diplomat podcast. This is Alexis, and in this episode, Fallon and I will discuss the popular proposed solutions to the conflict and their advantages and disadvantages. We also discuss the back-channel diplomatic maneuvering happening behind the scenes over the last few weeks. I go into detail on some of the diplomatic nuances that uniquely impact this conflict, as well as the role social media and the upcoming U.S. presidential election are playing in the Biden administration's response to these events. You all know the drill by now, so allow me to pre-correct myself on a few points before we get started. First, I give a very broad overview of both the one-state and two-state solutions. They are some of the most heavily debated topics in modern international relations, so if you want more of the detail and nuance on those options, please do the research if you feel so inclined. International humanitarian aid in Gaza is administered by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, for Palestinian refugees in the Near East. It was established in 1949 and has over 30,000 employees. Just to be as clear as possible, the exact definition of who can be a terrorist actor is debated by scholars and practitioners. In my experience as a diplomat, it is an established norm for governments not to refer to each other as terrorists, though they may use the term, quote unquote, state sponsors of terror. Welcome back to the Off-Duty Diplomat podcast. Uh, We are in the follow-up to Exile and Occupation, the Israel Explainer episode that we released to help, hopefully help you, the listener, make sense of what is and has been going on in Israel since October 7th, when Israel declared war on the terrorist group Hamas. We are now recording this follow-up episode on October 23rd. So quite a lot has happened since uh, the episode previously was recorded and and also put up. Unfortunately, the death hole has climbed considerably. I believe we're now over 5,000 people um, all told. And it looks like roughly a quarter to a third of that are women and children. So definitely civilian casualties, which is absolutely tragic. Fallon, anything to add before I go on? I didn't want to be right when I said it was going to grow, but I don't know. Again, I just I just get sad. I really get sad just thinking about all of those people dying who did not deserve to be put or thrust in the middle of something like this. <laughs> and I'm also I continue to remain frustrated with how people are talking about it. Um and uh hope that this is something good for more people than not. <laughs> Cuz there's not a lot of good out there. That's so, so true. I think, um, you know, just kind of reiterating kind of where we're situating ourselves in this discussion to be extra super clear for everyone. Our goal is just to give you background context, enough information to, number one, you know, have your own opinion on the topic that is somewhat informed. Number two, do your own research on it. You know, if you feel intrigued by something or you hear something that makes you think, well, wait, why would that be the case? Or, oh, I wonder, you know, what the fallout was from that or what the next steps would be. You know, we fully encourage you to like do that follow-up research, read, listen to as many sources as you can from different places. 
I think especially poignant right now, obviously only if you have the bandwidth for it or the personal firsthand accounts coming out from those who were directly impacted by what's been happening. I think those are incredibly powerful and once again should focus us on the human toll of what's been going on and the fact that these are very real human beings who are being impacted each and every day since this whole thing is kicked off and and clearly, you know, since we talked about in the explainer before, much longer than that even. Uh, and it's so easy when we talk about these global events to just lose sight of the individuals impacted. Oh, yeah, because, you know, everybody's too busy being angry and yelling at each other about, you know, bluntly semantics. And yeah, that just seems like the wrong thing to focus on to me right now. Here, 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 here. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so this episode, we're we're going to keep moving forward. and. In the vein we were in before, which is to continue adding context, I felt so bad about giving y'all an episode that was longer than an hour last time that I was committed to kind of wanting to do this follow-up to cover all the stuff that we didn't talk about that's still really important. And also Mm -hmm. just to keep up with sort of what's moving forward, because again, this is diplomacy in action. Um, And since we recorded, you know, two weeks ago and let the episode out last week, we've seen, unfortunately, a rise in the deaths. So there are continuing attacks, both rocket and ground attacks. Um, you have a refugee crisis potentially burgeoning on the southern border with Egypt, where there's a large group of you know Palestinians uh, who have been trying to leave the Gaza Strip through that crossing, and also to obtain humanitarian aid because the infrastructure within Gaza has been decimated by the fighting even more so than it was before. And it already was in very poor condition. And on top of that, you have the ongoing hostage crisis, the more than 200 Israelis who were taken hostage during the attack on October 8th, um, and how the international community is working on that, um, both publicly and behind closed doors. So On the public end of things, what we've seen is President Biden and Secretary Blinken make a huge effort, both um, publicly sort of speaking to the press, but also making an effort to be in regular and constant contact with Israeli officials um, and other partner nations from the area and also beyond, both to coordinate aid and also to discuss priorities when it comes to resolving the hostage crisis. That's a lot. That's a lot. I have some questions and I want to start with, let's start with, this is kind of like a piggyback off of the first question I asked, kind of more so of a, how did we get here again, but a different way. So like, let's talk about the different times they've tried to come to the table and fix this. Yeah. Can you, how, like, what's up with that? Is that another hour long question? Uh, it a hundred percent is, and <laughs> no, a hundred percent it is like, and I want to start there. Cause I'm just like, I want to get the history out of the way. Oh my Lord. And then we can finish with Ooh. what actually happened like yesterday. I am going to continue giving you the watered down TLDR. We don't have time for this version of that response. Uh, and so caveat, 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 not speaking for the U S government. I am not the smartest person when it comes to this particular topic. I know a fair amount. I'm going to tell you what I know, but obviously I know, and I'm aware that I'm leaving a whole lot of detail out of the mix. So I think the most important thing for everybody to understand is as soon as it was clear there was going to be a conflict, uh, 
it was clear that there was hopefully going to be some kind of proposed resolution to that conflict. And so starting in 48, moving forward through 67, through 73, Mm -hmm. through all the following conflicts, armed and otherwise going on. Border changes per the map. Border changes, yes. Going on between the Palestinian and the Israelis. The international community has always considered three possible solutions. Um, And I'm I'm going to say them all. I'm not trying to give weight to any one solution over another, but I'm going to do my best to make it as clear as possible what is on the table. And then we can zoom forward, fast forward back to today and see sort of what things are looking like. So the first solution is what's called the one state solution, which is basically the idea that the Palestinians would also be given the right to citizenship within the state of Israel. uh, And that Theoretically, in some way, the Palestinians living in exile outside of Israel, outside of Gaza and outside of the West Bank and outside of East Jerusalem would have some ability to, quote unquote, return to the land itself and claim that citizenship. Now, there are a ton of complications that come with this solution. The largest drawback um, traditionally from the Israeli perspective is that a one state solution would mean that the Jewish population of Israel would be massively outnumbered by the non-Jewish population of Israel, which would then make it very difficult for the state to maintain its quote-unquote Jewish democratic identity. And that is something that is, like, that has to be a thing. There's no one without the other, question mark? Great question, Fal. Not one I can answer. Uh, Oh, okay. That's really not one I can answer. That's a question for... The Israeli no, that, public, government, etc. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do my own Googles because that's really it's it's been hard to wrap my head around since we've been talking about it just because like I am conditioned to separate them because of where I'm from, where I've lived, and never been there, never visited. I know people who have lived there, so it's just like again, I don't. I'm trying to relate into it, and I'm struggling, and so that's why I'm like, it, you know, our yeah, do they have to be together? This oh, is a tricky okay. one because this is where in our previous discussion I was talking so much about sort of what happens or what's built in when you create uh, an ethno-nationalist state or a religious nationalist state. You kind mm-hmm. of build these specific questions and problems into it. What happens if you have a large influx of people who are outside of that quote-unquote central identity category for citizenship? You know, mm-hmm. the, of course things are going to change significantly. and at this point, there has not been a lot of flexibility for or support for that, uh, that changing, mm-hmm. uh, especially because, you know, Jewish, well, the entire idea behind sort of Zionism, Jewish nationalism is a homeland for the quote unquote Jewish people. So mm-hmm. what happens if that homeland then has a population of non-Jewish people that is higher than the Jewish population? Hmm. But I mean, is it fair to say that a lot of Americans lean Christian. Yeah, we could probably Google that. Yeah, probably. I'm going to do a quick Google. Um, but if I'm right, then is this a Christian state unofficially? Question Ooh, mark, question is. mark, question mark. This is <laughs> you guys cannot see me, but I'm wiggling a little bit <laughs> in my chair because that's such a great <laughs> question. Well, we just had a conversation, you and I, about what it is to be sort of secularly something versus Mm -hmm. religiously something. There are a lot Mm -hmm. of Americans celebrating 
holidays with roots in religion that don't consider themselves religious. You'd be hard right. pressed to find, you know, a large group people of Americans in- that don't celebrate Christmas. And right. plenty of those people do not consider themselves religious. And yet mm-hmm. we've adopted those Christian holidays as part of the national observance apparatus. You get, hol- you know, winter holidays off and Easter off and things like that. So yes, no, maybe. Okay. So per wiki by way of Pew in December of 2021. Love it. Thank you. Um, yes, look, y'all not coming for me. Um, (laughs) estimates from 2021 suggest (laughs) that of the entire U S population, three, three, two millions, about a 63% are Christian. So 210 million and majority of Christian Americans are Protestant. And there are significant numbers of Catholics and other Christian denominations. And oh, the U.S. has the largest Christian population in the world and more specifically, the largest Protestant population in the world. So maybe so this two, is we got two of them. Maybe this is a moment of realizing how much Christian cultural hegemony there is in our public spaces that maybe was invisible before you started thinking about it in the Israeli context. Yeah, this is that is literally what's happening in my brain. Again, I I did not come here super super prepped, so this is dangerous. <laughs> but like, I'm just like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, math ain't math ain't. But okay, so that was option one. Option and one is the one state talked around. Yes, the ways that that obviously didn't happen. So it didn't. It hasn't happened, and I I did want to call it one other complication for one state solution. So on the one hand, you have the increase in a non-Jewish population issue that's always of concern to Israel for the reasons I just mentioned. But Mm -hmm. another issue is if there is a right of return extended to Palestinians living in exile and their descendants, that also means there might have to be a property reparations or repayment process for those who lost property when they left the state from the 40s all the way forward, you know, to the 2000s. So the question is, well, what happens then? And how are we Mm -hmm. defining a Palestinian for the purposes of determining citizenship? Um, What body gets to do that? There are a lot, a lot, a lot of additional issues involved here. And I think one of the big ones also to be concerned about from the Israeli perspective is that property repayment or recompense that would probably need to happen if a right of return was extended. So that's another thing I would throw out there for one of the complications and a potential one state solution. That's okay. always been a sticking point. All right. So right. on to- That was one. Number yes, two. What I would colloquially and perhaps too flippantly called, quote unquote, everybody's favorite option, the two-state solution. Uh, two-state solution is basically the idea that the Palestinians would have their own homeland and individual sovereign state made up of land currently within the territory of the boundaries of Israel. So- Back in the day when this first came up and there was a contiguous chunk of land stretching from Gaza to the West Bank that actually had, like I said, a contiguous border, that felt a lot more doable. Um, Mm -hmm. Instead, looking at the map and where we are today and what the territories are around Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, it looks really difficult to sort of carve out any kind of sovereign state from those very distinct and frankly quite distant chunks of land for the most part. And so the idea of the two-state solution is, okay, that way everybody gets a piece of this specific area. 
you would have, you know, a state, you would have a military, you would have all of the other sort of trappings of a sovereign nation. uh, And that theoretically, you know, everybody has their peace and we can call it split and divided, done and done. You know, all of the Palestinians who are in exile can go to the Palestinian state that's been created. Mm -hmm. You know, the Israelis have their own peace now. Hopefully that's the end of the game. Now there are a ton of complications in this. Not I'm about <laughs> go to ahead. Say, I'm like, uh, yeah, border being where? Because again, as we agreed, there is no new land. So where we're going to put them? We still have a problem of where we put people, <laughs> and it being okay with them and aligned with whatever ways they decide to govern themselves. So yeah, yes, that's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> yes, yeah, and so that is. There are a lot of issues there, too, because in the, like, early 2000s, so like 2000, I think it was 2006, Hamas won uh, the general election for government within Gaza. And I think since that happened, well, not just since that happened, but there's a fear among Israeli, the Israeli government that if you know, Palestine becomes its own governing authority, what's to stop them from going to war with Israel in an official capacity? And there's no real knowing sort of, is it going to be the PLO or Hamas that would win, you know, control of government? And I guess there's just a sense that, oh, well, we won't be able to control it. So, and I think this is maybe a nitpicky distinction to be making, but I think it's going to help people kind of understand this situation a little bit better. Currently, the Palestinian territories are just that, they're territories. So they don't have a standing military. They don't, they have some trappings of government, but there are a lot of sort of rights and um, institutions that a sovereign nation possesses that they don't. I did not know that. Yeah. I did not know that. Because a territory is not a a state for the purposes. So it's like a commonwealth. Are they like Puerto Rico? I mean, I I hope not. I mean, I don't, I hope not. I mean, girl, it's pretty bad over there. Yeah. <laughs> like Puerto Rico chilling in comparison right now. But yeah, it's giving Puerto Rico. I didn't know that. Right. Huh, so right. a territory is not a state. Once you become a state, right. you have sovereign authority, which means they get to decide and jump into these disputes about, okay, well, who owns this part of the coast of the Mediterranean? Are we participating in those shipping agreements? They get to sign on and be a party to international agreements like the Geneva Convention, the ICC Criminal Court, the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Human Rights De- Declaration, like all of those other sort of international community agreements. They get to have representation in a formal way in a lot of these bodies. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I think, of course, a big question, maybe not the big question, but a big question that comes to my mind is, well, what happens when you are the neighbor, the close neighbor of a nuclear state, you know, and now you have a military, but they don't have, you know, and so that kind of whole thing gets mixed into it also. But the Mm. two state solution is, as I said, colloquially, the crowd favorite for, because I think it makes people feel good. I think it feels like, okay, everyone got their peace. Now we everyone can like gets a peace. But again, it's like, mm, who's peace? Who has it to give? That's ugh. ever since I started thinking about this for real. It's just like, who gets to give? Who gets to take? Who gets to receive? Who gets to be looked at as the villain? Who gets to be looked at as the victim? It's just it seems like the goalpost shifts so much depending on where you turn your head. It's a lot. <laughs> yes. So 
it's in many ways people's favorite idea because I think they mm-hmm. feel like it's kind of a set it and forget it. It's like, okay, everyone got theirs. We can all go home. I don't think that would be true. I think it would be very complex. But the situation now is the biggest hurdle for that is there's no contiguous land currently existing that would make up a Palestinian state. So the big there question there was for, uh, there was at the beginning. Yeah. There, so now yeah. the big question is, well, where would this Palestinian state go? Where are the borders going to be? Uh, what are the, you know, access to water going to be? Are they going to have access to the Mediterranean? Are they going to have access to the Jordanian border? You know, what happens to the Israeli citizens living on any land that has to be cleared out? Are they just going to be, you know, what's that, you know, process going to look like? Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be considered within that potential solution as well. The solution is one of the more extremist positions. Um, I'm not advocating for this in any way, just in case you thought I was, I'm definitely not. Um, But I do want to explain that this is a solution that some factions in this uh, dispute have in their minds so that you don't just think, oh, everyone's either pro one state or two state. Right. There is another potential ending for this. And I won't call it a solution because solution implies that, you know, there's any consideration for all parties. Ah, uh, oh, so okay. this. I think I know where we're going. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this unfortunate outcome would be one in which the Palestinians continue to lack official statehood, um, but instead are pushed and absorbed increasingly and additionally by neighbor countries. So you already have a really large population of Palestinians living in exile in Jordan. In Egypt, um, honestly, all over the world, there are quite a few Palestinians that are American dual citizens, Canadian dual citizens, Mm -hmm. fill in the blank, because of how long that refugee crisis has been going on. And there are absolutely political factions within Israel. Many of them, unfortunately, have taken advantage of this situation to become more vocal and more visible, who would love to use what's happening as an excuse to basically make the Gazan Strip unlivable. Um, for the Palestinians. And you already see a real buildup of people at the southern border before Netanyahu started the uh, uh, northern Gaza hitting Hamas target, or I should say targeting Hamas targets, which unfortunately are in many cases by default also civilian targets because of the way that that space is set up. Yeah, Um, You had them sending these leaflets down telling people, hey, we're going to be invading here. We're going to be attacking here. And so you saw that big rush of Palestinians headed towards the southern border with Egypt um, to the crossing to try and get out of the way of what was coming. For they many only people. had yeah. 24 hours to do this, right? Well, if I'm, yes and of, no. There was like a time limit. There was. I just remember there being a time limit. It's just like, you got to get out of here by oops. There was a time limit. Um, and then you'll notice a bunch of international partners came together Mm -hmm. and started having intensive conversations with Netanyahu and a lot of his leadership Mm -hmm. apparatus, where I don't know, again, don't work for the State Department. I've not been included on any official conversations. This is you getting- What is the tea? I am fully speculating, (laughs) uh, which is to say you are getting an educated best guess from a former diplomat, but it is just that. It's a guess. So I suspect- They were in intensive meetings with him, number one, trying to counsel Mm -hmm. restraint in response because of how public and horrific the death toll within Gaza is becoming and growing and evidently is. Um, Number two, the fact that there's almost no real humanitarian aid response availability, at least there wasn't last week, 
finally the southern border has opened and the humanitarian aid is coming into Gaza so that people can get treatment and help that they need. Uh, And then I think the other piece of that is the hostages, because as I said in our previous Explainer episode, so many Israelis are dual citizens. There are a lot of Americans that are being held as hostages right now. There's a a sizable contingent. And, you know, President Biden cannot afford to let Americans be killed in this exchange. As far as he is able to prevent it, he must try to prevent it politically. He has to try. So I'm pretty sure he was in this negotiating arena with Netanyahu, with other partner nations. And I think in many ways they were really trying to hash out, okay, you guys need to give them more time to move. Uh, We need to find a way to get hostages back. You need to like make very clear to the international community what your strategy is for getting them back because it is Mm -hmm. unacceptable to allow these people to become casualties. How many have been returned? Do you know? Have any? So far, the press have just reported that two have been returned, and both of them, you'll note, are American citizens. Mm. Got it. Do we know any idea of roughly how many hostages are being held right now? Did you say that and I miss it? Yeah, I think think they estimated the number at about 200, around 200 people. And only two? Only two. But you'll notice as soon as those two come out, within 12 hours, those humanitarian trucks are coming through the southern border through Egypt into. So this is a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Again, I don't know. But my guess is that uh, as part of the negotiation process, having that humanitarian aid come through required a show Mm -hmm. of good faith. So they released the two hostages as a show of good faith. The international community unlocks the humanitarian aid coming in and they've delayed Netanyahu's ground invasion by, I believe, a whole week. Because I, I think they were yeah, supposed they to start going in on, yet. yeah, Monday the 16th, I think they were supposed to start going in, and they didn't. Okay. Um, and so now we're, yeah, we're that's more exactly than a week, a week ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly a week. Wow. But the airstrikes are still striking. Airstrikes? Yeah. As, as of yesterday, I believe they hit a refugee camp, um, mm-hmm. which unfortunately had a ton of casualties, um, which is really, really awful. Yeah. So those so, were the three, so though. The third, Going the back to solution the solution is basically oh, yeah. goodbye, Palestinians. See, wouldn't want to be you. Exactly. Oh, man. Those are all complicated. I'm just going to keep saying stuff is complicated because I just don't know what else to say because this is weird and hard. Okay, so those are the proposed peace solutions. But Hamas has kind of just... I think at this point, it's really hard to tell what Hamas is thinking and what they were thinking, even when it came to putting this attack together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really hard to guess kind of what their calculus was. The only part of what they've done so far that makes any sense to me from a negotiation standpoint was taking those Mm -hmm. hostages, because now it does make things like a ground strike and an airstrike more difficult to do because of the international visibility. If there were not American citizens being held in Gaza right now, you know, by Hamas, would those airstrikes have been halted would there have been more opportunity would there be humanitarian aid rolling in we don't know mm. but we do I know that seeing yeah oh no go no, no no you got it no i was just gonna say we do know that you know having that visibility means all partner nations have to take a pause and there can't just be i just feel like at the beginning of this when it first kicked off you know october 7th 8th 9th you had all these really strong sort of unequivocal statements of support for israel 
you know, do whatever you have to do, take down Hamas by whatever needs necessary. And now statements are becoming much more nuanced and much more about, you know, the humanitarian situation, the human toll. Um, And I'm not so cynical as to say like none of that's true and all of that's a smokescreen because of the hostages, but the diplomat in me is going to tell you that that hostage crisis would be catastrophic for Biden if we lost American citizens. Mm. Okay. So yeah, that's a good segue to this other question about the diplomat, other diplomatic conversations. So we kind of talked about maybe what could be happening behind closed doors as far as like, hey, Netanyahu, yo, you need to chill. Hey, what's up with these humanitarian aid things? Ah, the hostages, flood the emails. Who knows? Put your diplomat hat on or keep it on. Diplomat hat. And tell me, tell, tell me more about what other conversations could potentially be happening behind closed doors to reduce the loss of life, try to get everybody to chill out. Yeah. So, you know, on the one, on the most basic level, there's the logistic conversations that are happening. A lot of people don't know this, but because of how bad the infrastructure is within Gaza, um, they've had refugee like support humanitarian aid for quite a long time and all of that's um processed through the un mission through their refugee services that are on the ground so those humanitarian aid trucks that have driven in are being administered by the un um on the ground through that refugee distribution system that they have set up and whatever they've got going still that hasn't been destroyed um so that's like very logistical the other part of that would be talking about the hostage release dynamics. So obviously, if you take a hostage, theoretically, you want something in exchange for that hostage. I don't know what it is Hamas is asking for. I suspect that humanitarian aid was a piece of what they've asked for, but I have absolutely no idea what their main goal was in taking those people. They must be looking to trade them to trade them for something significant, but Honestly, I I can't think of what it would be. And I don't know how confident I feel about them getting it. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> if if they've asked for money, if they've asked for money, it they're officially a terrorist organization. And for those of you who mm. don't know, if you are an international recognized transnational criminal or terrorist organization, you cannot participate in the global financial system. You can't get bank accounts with like most banks, almost no countries will trade with you. You are on watch lists. All of your money is tracked from start to finish, which is one reason that terrorist groups tend to operate mostly in the black market because they cannot, without a highly sophisticated series of fronts, you cannot operate in the legitimate financial system. Now, that doesn't mean it can't happen, but we've made it really, 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 really hard to do. So, <laughs> rightfully if, so. If they were asking for money, it, the, big question I have is, well, how the heck would they even get it? And where would it go? You know, how is well, Hamas banking? A lot of people think, or can you also kind of clear up or help confirm for me what Hamas is, if not a terrorist organization? Because I have seen, I have heard a lot of people calling it that. And so if it's not that, what is it? Is it walking, <sighs> quacking like a duck? Or like, what are we doing? Hamas is both. Uh, and one thing I want to say, and this gets to a, a very short convo you and I had, I think in like season one, episode three, where I made this distinction and I don't think everybody really caught what that would mean. So Hamas is both a government and a terrorist organization. How so? Um, sure. So there was a, uh, as I said before, an election in 2006 
um, in the Gaza Strip, Hamas won as a political party. Um, and they have ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, um, other extremist factions. Uh, and so Hamas took control of Gaza after winning that election. They have pretty much always been advocating armed resistance by the Palestinians to what they consider to be Israeli occupation. So it's not a surprise to anybody what Hamas stands for. They've been very clear from the beginning what they're about, what they're trying to do. Um, Hamas, once it took power, had continued to like really escalate fighting and attacks against Israel, Israelis, different targets, even moderate Palestinian targets um, that they considered to be, you know, counter to their their aims. So Mm. they are outspokenly pro-armed Palestinian resistance. They've also designated a terrorist group. Now, this, like I said, is comes back to what I was talking about in that episode, because if they were a formal country and they were the government of that country, you could call them a state sponsor of terror, but you could not designate them a terrorist group. What? Why does that distinction matter? Because... And this is one of these real like nitpicky, silly little things about international relations. But in the tradition of international relations theory, only a non-state actor can be a terrorist group or can be terrorist. If you are Hmm. a state, a government, an officially recognized country, you can be a state sponsor of terror, but you are not going to be designated as terrorist by any government entity. So you'll notice Even when the U.S. is talking about Iran, um, other perceived antagonist country, you know, North Korea, Russia, we never call them terrorists. Even when they are attacking civilian targets, we will always refer to them as state sponsors of terror. So is that Russia? You said Russia? Like, did we say that about when they did the thing in Ukraine? I mean, if let's say that they're bombing... uh, uh, let's say a school. They have attacked a school mm-hmm. in Ukraine. We know that's not a military target. It's clearly right. a civilian target. It's done to in- intimidate the public population into submitting to Russian rule. It's done to break the spirit, which is what a lot of terrorist actions are meant to do. Um, mm. But you're not going to ever hear the U.S. say, oh, Russia is a terrorist state or a terrorist actor. Right. We will call them a state sponsor of terror. Wow, I had never really thought about that until you said it. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't I think we've never, never actually said that. You will call, let's say, Al-Qaeda a terrorist group. Yeah. But you would never call yes. the government of Pakistan terrorists. You know, not, I'm not no. equivocating those two things. No, it's just an example. Exactly, it's just an example. But you would never, we would not do that. Semantics. I but know, also, girl, but it, it makes a Words difference. mean things. Yes. It does mean, yeah, no, that's why precision is really going to be important to talk about this. And also being aware of these little nuanced things I'm realizing is even more important. I feel like I have to have like a little notebook, <laughs> a, a, a little list of terms. Well, we need your levity because I just brought us so deep into like this official definitions of terrorism. But I was just going to say the fact that Hamas is referred to as a terrorist organization shows you the fact that they do not have sovereign nation status. They and the Palestinians don't. do not have that. Yes. Because and otherwise they couldn't little, call them that. Again, whatever little election that they won doesn't, you know, paper covers rock. Like It's a territory. <laughs> it's not a country. It's not a country. So your little government ain't even a government. 
in these streets. They're not allowed to maintain a military. They do so because they are specific. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, man. My face hurts now. Wow. Oh, man. This is so bad. <laughs> this is so bad. <laughs> oh. Dang. I don't mean to laugh. There's nothing about this that's funny. Not one bit of this. It's is a funny. very common way of processing discomfort and intensity. Very uncomfortable. This but, is super intense. Yes. And in many ways, what I'm describing to you is you know, farcical, it's absurdist because we're drawing these distinctions. Like I said, you can have a state actor that does the exact same things for the exact same reasons as a terrorist group, or sorry, as a non-state actor, but because of the way that the international community functions with each other, they're never going to be spoken about in the same way. And then again, with the speaking abouting is also connected to like, Things like being able to defend yourself, um, having access ugh. to the global financial network, you right. know, we, sustain we have, yourself. We have frozen funds and we continue to maintain financial sanctions against Iran and other, quote mm. unquote, antagonist countries from a U.S. perspective. But mm-hmm. that's why I'm also saying I have no idea what Hamas is holding out for. Like, I have no idea. Yeah, what, they're trying what do to they for really think? Yeah. If, if Iran is struggling, what are like, where is the money going to like? How could you even get it? You know, are, you can't be. I Well, that's not true. It's possible that this is for them. It's just about humanitarian aid. But I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. So this would be a really extreme way to get help. This is my biggest question, you know, and one I can't answer, you know, as a former diplomat, I would be very curious to know what it is Hamas is asking for, for the return of those hostages besides the humanitarian aid. And I think that's Mm. a mystery that we'll have to wait and see as time goes on. Maybe it'll become clear. Maybe there'll be some land concession. Maybe there'll be some loosening of restrictions. I mean, I kind of super duper doubt that because if there's well, and then so I also want to step forward a little bit and talk about this from my knowledge, a little bit of the internal Israeli domestic situation. Mm -hmm. I think fast forward, we're going to be seeing a real public reckoning for the Netanyahu government and security apparatus, if it hasn't Mm. happened already. um, I think as soon as he's able to say, okay, the war is over, we've secured whatever ending is going to be this ending, he is going to be under tremendous public fire to resign. He might even be held for criminal misconduct um, and negligence and incompetence. Uh, it's, I suspect a number of people within his security apparatus are going to be facing public calls to lose their jobs because of the level of failure that allowed this to happen. Yeah. Uh, Their defense systems are like net, like really good. So they are state of the art. Surprising. Again, I keep hearing about this iron dome. I'm like, yeah, you got a dome, bro. Damn. It is, right. It's the most advanced missile defense system in the world. And so what I'm saying is Netanyahu in some ways has a dog in the fight of prolonging this war because as soon as it's sort of we're done with this rally around the flag moment, he is going hot to seat. be not just because he was just seat, in it. His hot seat will be hotter than it's ever been before because Israelis have died. There's going to be a, at some point once they've done the background and the discovery on what exactly went down. Um, there will be a series of failures in multiple systems that need to be addressed immediately. And mm-hmm. I just don't see the Israeli public ever forgiving anyone who was supposed to be on watch when this happened. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oof. Okay. Well, little lighter, sort of, kind of. Sure. Not really. Work. Nothing about this is like um, <laughs> humanitarian aid. We've talked about it a little bit. Um, so let's talk about the help. So how is that distributed within Gaza? Like, I know I've personally seen a couple hospitals pop up here and there, but I think that we're also struggling to get like resources like water and stuff or anesthesia. But like, I know hospitals and doctors and stuff are around. What else? What else? Oh, Fal, this is a great question. Um, And it's a really important one because a lot of the problems that exist within Gaza right now are systemic. You know, they Mm -hmm. don't have a water delivery and filtration system that is going to be sustainable. They don't have like the ability to grow and manufacture food in ways that are sustainable for the population as a whole. They don't have like steady electricity for the population. And all of that has to do with kind of massive capital infrastructure investments that have to happen over time. As we know, in Texas, we have a grid that Mm -hmm. fails from time to time, and that's a huge deal. Yep. And so one thing I really want to be clear about is development aid and humanitarian aid are very different. Development Mm -hmm. aid should be there for the purpose of helping create sustainable systems of development on the ground. So that would be us like, helping them build a desalinization plant to put on the coast of the Mediterranean so that they will have water moving forward. Humanitarian oh, aid is, humanitarian aid is here are bottles of water for every household. Oh, or paper towels. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was shade. I mean, humanitarian aid is, oh, here is a tent in this refugee camp. Development right. aid is here's supplies and support for rebuilding structures that are missing. Yep. And so is any of that development stuff happening? No. Okay. This aid is specifically humanitarian assistance. And that's one thing I wanted to call people's attention to. So I, mm. I feel like the theme of this episode is it's all about the words that are being used and pay attention to the vocabulary because mm-hmm. every single thing that's done in diplomacy at this level is parsed and defined so carefully. So because they're calling it humanitarian aid means we are specifically not investing in infrastructure fixes. What they are well, doing is stemming the wound. Right they're putting a tourniquet on somebody's leg. We're not prepping him for surgery. Yeah. Oof. This one, this episode should be called Words Mean Things. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they, in Words this, matter. Woof, a lot. Bigly. Oof. And when we get to, okay. I mean, you, that was perfect, baby, segue you just did. But like when we get to season two, this is one reason why I believe firmly the Trump administration's dangerous ignorance about the history of this region, the conflict, the U.S.'s role in it was so problematic is because they ignored all of these nuances and they kind of just shot from the hip. Uh, And by doing that, you know, if you don't understand what it is you're saying and committing to, you can really push things further in one direction or another than you intended Mm -hmm. to do. And if there's one thing that's really important in diplomacy, it's intention. We need to be as clear as possible, which is why we parse words on these things so that everyone knows exactly what the boundaries are uh, and exactly what is being offered and what's off the table. Right. Everyone is clear without a shadow of a doubt that this means that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So why why are we offering aid to the Gazans? Because like Israel's the homie, officially, unofficially. We know this. It's clear. <laughs> no one would dispute or refute. So why are we helping the other the other folk? If I may, Fallon, uh, 
You may know that we are heading into an election year in 2024. And I'm going to take this moment and I'm going to look into the camera and I'm speaking to you, dear listener, directly. Ah. If you have been tweeting, posting, messaging, writing your representative about this conflict, stuff like that moves this needle in real time. So there is a time when this all could have been going on and because we didn't have social media and we didn't have the same access to information. It would be much more difficult for the political parties to know where you, the American public, stand on this issue. And if you look at a lot of the polling that's been happening, the younger coastal elite, quote unquote, liberal voters are much more interested in, you know, I, I guess seeing a humanitarian response from the U.S. Mm-hmm. from this. And I've been watching a lot of what's going on online both in my own circles, but also just what's being reported more broadly. And I think it's crystal clear to me, not all of this is due to you, dear listener, um, telling potentially (laughs) President Biden or your own friends, hey, here's where I stand on this, or I really care about the human toll that's, you know, being exacted. But that absolutely Mm. is something that his White House is monitoring. And so Mm. for him to ignore the cost of this on the Palestinian side and focus solely on giving unequivocal support to Israel, especially when we know how many of the casualties being hit are in fact, you know, civilians and non-combatants, non-Hamas, he would be in huge political trouble. So I just wanted to turn to you this moment and say, um, if you've been talking about this online, they are paying attention to it. This is a rare moment when the U.S., population cares about foreign policy enough to be very loud and direct with our leadership about what we expect. And I think it was an NPR uh, article I was reading that was specifically talking about the polling and how younger voters are really concerned about the human toll that these events are are taking. So y'all are having an impact on history. I just thought I would let you know. I mean, because, again, the women and children that just so happen to be in this place don't deserve this. Like anybody who is not Hamas doesn't necessarily. I mean, whatever. Either way. Okay, so we talked about humanitarian aid. We talked about peace solutions. We talked about diplomatic conversations happening behind closed doors. We've said Biden's name a couple times. So let's let's just go there. He went. They talked. Why? Was that to kind of put the pause on everything since it was getting kind of spicy? Because, I mean, if he's there, then, you know, people are going to act right. Hugely, hugely. Yes. Um, And I think this should hopefully show people kind of the depth of the U.S.-Israel relationship where they just suffered a horrific terrorist attack on their citizens, on civilians also. There was loss of life on the Israeli side. There are now hostages being held who I think the entire country is probably watching with bated breath, hoping that those people will come home safely. Um, And in the midst of that level of pressure and trauma and intensity, Netanyahu is still stopping what he's doing to hear what Biden has to say about it. And it's taking probably his direct requests very seriously and very concretely. And I want y'all to think back to 9-11 and here in the U.S. Was there anyone internationally who we could have spoken to who would have slowed that train down of our response, even one iota? And you already know the answer to that is no. I'm shaking my head. Well, I'm honestly, 
I was in high school at the time. Um, did any foreign leaders even come over? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, we weren't taking any guests. They did a lot of this <laughs> through the UN. Um, and mm. at some point, y'all, I'm going to do an explainer on what the UN actually is and what it does, because maybe some of you don't know this, but I actually did an internship at the UN when I was in undergrad. So I've worked there. I was in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations for Africa, too. So I know a lot about how these conflicts are resolved, how they're administered, how the international community comes together to handle them or doesn't. Um, so mm. at some point, we'll talk about that. But Basically, we use the UN as a legitimacy granting body in that instance so that we would have sort of public agreement that, okay, we've all agreed the U.S. is going to mm. invade these places. Do and that thing. was where we secured international military support for it. Right. We're like, we ride a dawn. Exactly. Literally. Literally. <laughs> no, I, I know. Yeah. I'm like, they are ready to ride at dawn. And, we, yeah. and they have delayed writing for a whole week because of diplomatic conversations happening behind. Again, I don't know, allegedly, because of diplomatic conversations happening behind the scenes. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. So are we seeing diplomacy at work? You are literally seeing it at work. So there's the macro and the micro, right? On the macro level, okay. it's Biden, it's Secretary Blinken having these conversations mm -hmm. hour after hour on end with... The Ministry of Defense in Israel, the, you know, prime minister's office, the president's mm -hmm. office, just like on and on, you know, the intelligence services talking to mm -hmm. each other, trying to figure out how this happened and also coordinating with partner nations in the negotiations because I, there's this sort of colloquial phrase, oh, the U.S. doesn't negotiate with terrorists, right. but somebody has to. So I'm not going to detail what that process could be looking like um, because there are lives at stake. And obviously that's more important than y'all having a completely transparent understanding of how negotiations may or may not happen uh, between Or parties. join the Patreon. <laughs> no, kidding. Don't, no. I mean, join it, but you're not going to get that tea. No, no, no. <laughs> but let's just say those conversations are also being had by interested mm. parties on the micro level. My former colleagues, the people who would have been at my level, working level diplomats, have been night after night, day after day at the airports, helping American citizens, helping the citizens of other countries get out of Israel on commercial flights, on chartered flights. They've been giving them what's called repatriation loans. So if you're an American citizen and let's say you're robbed overseas and you don't have any money and you can't get home for some reason, you don't have a ticket already, you can borrow money from the U.S. Embassy. And to get yourself back home. So there are a lot of mm. people who've been caught out, you know, by what went down and they didn't have the resources to get home, but the U.S. government will help you get home. And that's what my colleagues are doing on the ground. Now, obviously, from the macro side of it, having President yeah. Biden on the ground, having, you know, Secretary Blinken involved is really important for resolving these high level critical issues like keeping the hostages alive and getting them back. But yeah. um, from the macro, my friends, my former colleagues are the ones who are supporting these people during their visits. So instead of being at the airport and being able to help Americans get home, a certain percentage of them have to drop everything and support uh -huh. a presidential visit. And that means things like being there to write up all of the meeting notes that happen in these high level meetings, making sure that everybody involved um, at different like uh, offices at the embassy is completely informed minute by minute. That means checking the press and seeing what's reported hour by hour, making sure that we're sending out emergency responses um, so that American citizens have the most up-to-date information so they can 
you know, decide how they're going to move safely throughout the region and, and in the country. And obviously, communicating to the American public, who are many of them very afraid for the lives of their friends, family, loved ones who are both within Gaza and within Israel right now, and, and who are suffering. And so there's all of this diplomatic apparatus that springs into action. People, I'm telling you, my colleagues on the ground probably have not had a day off since October 7th. They've been working around yeah. the clock. They have not <laughs> probably done laundry, some of them. They're sleeping no. in their offices, some of them. They're sleeping at the airport, some of them, around the clock to be able to get this done. And obviously, I, you know, we take a real human perspective on diplomacy and what it means. And I do want to just shout out and express appreciation for all of, you know, my former diplomatic colleagues who were on the ground and doing this work around the clock. And these are the moments that it really matters, you know, what y'all are doing. It always matters. But these are the moments when it's the most visible to the world how important your work is. Mm -hmm. And I just want to commend y'all because I know what you're sacrificing and how hard it is. And I see you. I appreciate you. Thank you for your service. Yeah, even though we might not know your names. Y'all should also come on the podcast too. I can't stop selling. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I'm like, just come talk to us. Okay. What do you think is going to happen next? Going to happen next. Uh, this ground invasion will happen. Eventually. It's going to happen. Netanyahu is caught between a rock and a hard place. If he pushes too mm -hmm. hard, the diplomatic community is going to come down on him like a ton of bricks. If he doesn't push hard enough, he's going to make his situation even worse from the Israeli perspective. Because then he'll be like, oh, you let it happen to us and you didn't even do anything about it afterward. Mm. So he's got to tread that line pretty carefully. I think the, the main thing to pay attention to right now is the hostages. They've told us yeah. the two have been released. Pay attention to how that unfolds. Pay attention if there are other announcements of things being granted to Palestinians, because that might give us some sense of what Hamas is negotiating for. Obviously, mm, yeah. you know, kind of the, the center square for this whole thing is if there are any territorial border changes as a result of what's going on. If the Gazan Strip becomes smaller, um, if there's, you know, some announcement of additional land being granted, that seems much less likely to me, but it could happen. Um, that's like the big, big thing to pay attention for. And then otherwise, yeah, those are sort of the macro things I'd be paying attention to as this continues to unfold. And what or how do you think this will impact us as a country slash people and our upcoming elections? Because I mean, so we got the election coming up, like I said before. Um, and for those, I mean, this is kind of like a known thing for you know, anybody who's involved in politics, the American public does not care about foreign policy. It's one reason the State Department is so underfunded and undersupported compared to like the Department of Defense, for example. You know, do you want us to prevent these wars or do you want us to be prepared for them? Uh, and you can talk about the way we've balanced our investments based on that principle. But thinking further than that, this is a very, very rare moment where the American public is very focused on uh, like international affairs um, in a very political way. And so this is why you're hearing so much messaging from the Republican candidates on this topic. And it's also why you're seeing Biden do his best to straddle both sides, quote unquote, as much as he possibly can in the press. And you'll, if you literally, so if, you, weird. if you just it's look so at the weird. way his team was messaging on October 7th to the way they're messaging today, you will see for yourself. Everything is changing. Huge Everything shift. is going more towards the middle and it's very nuanced. Um, and that's again, because we were he team knows. human from jump. Yes. But not everybody. And that's why you can see his team has been like, you know, sir, 
your potential voting base in 2024 are under the age of 30, 35. They're generally educated. They skew liberal, honestly, and they care about, you know, these people who are being impacted, these civilians who are being impacted by this violence. And I, I, I don't know, and I'll never know. And this is all allegedly, and I'm speculating best guess, all that caveat, but I'm telling y'all, this is a huge region why that humanitarian aid is happening. Uh, and if you really want to make an impact, you should let your congressperson, et cetera, know that you're interested in development aid uh, for yeah. the Palestinians, because this humanitarian aid is finite. It's going to dry up eventually, and they'll be right back where they started, but with crumbled buildings everywhere uh, and even less infrastructure than before. And so if you do care about this, keep up the pressure. They are paying attention. This is a rare moment they are paying attention. Mm-hmm. And we can definitely galvanize all of that energy. <laughs> transmute that towards helping and not yelling. Yeah. And, and on the other side of that, the same thing is true when it comes to the hostages coming home alive. Um, I'm sure yes. there are people who are in these conversations who are like, oh, getting rid of Hamas is the, should be the primary goal. And again, as Fallon said, this is a human centered podcast. Let's get these people home alive. If at all possible. For real. And let's um, not try to ride the coattails of people's um, bad things going on. There it's was not, a, it's not productive. It's not, productive. it's not productive. And um, you know, I, I just, I speaking as someone who is very much on the periphery of this, you know, it, this is not the moment for any of us who are not directly impacted to be trying to take up space in the middle. Our job is to be on the sideline and be on the side and support human beings as much as possible uh, in a way that is has integrity and respect and authenticity and hopefully some compassion. Thank you for joining us for this follow-up episode. I didn't want to end this without acknowledging the anti-Semitic and anti-Islamic violence happening in the U.S. since the tragic events of October 7th. These attacks are reprehensible, and I truly hope there will be no further loss of life. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can buy hats, mugs, t-shirts, and Public. If you are a current or former diplomat that would like to tell your story, you can email me at offdutydiplomat at gmail.com. Off-Duty Diplomat is an oral memoir of my career in the Foreign Service. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a review. Thanks for listening.